Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Regeneration Podcast. I'm Jay, and uh, today Isaac and I are in a conversation with someone that we um, have admired for a long time. His work has been really influential, uh, not just for us, but for so many church leaders. You guys um, who've been in the local church for a while, you you may be familiar with um, Advent Conspiracy, that entire sort of global now movement, which um, catalyzes local churches uh, during the Christmas time to um, give and uh, give of their time and their resources to make a difference in the world uh, rather than just collecting stuff. Well, Rick McKinley is one of the one of the guys who launched that, um, and that's many people know him from that work as well as um, many books that he's written over the years. And today, uh, Isaac and I chat with him about his latest book, which is called Faith for This Moment. And um, it really truly is for this moment. The book is provocative and prophetic in the sense that it speaks to the incredibly unique and challenging time in which we find ourselves uh, for all sorts of reasons. Um, this sort of hyper-polarized, really angry, and extremely confusing time. And so uh, it, it's a really helpful uh, and powerful conversation. Um, so uh, I'm excited for you to hear it. So here is our conversation with Rick McKinley. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Regeneration Podcast. I'm Jay, and as always, here with my friend Isaac. And today we are talking to someone we've admired from a distance for a long, long time. Someone who's been really, truly, I don't say this lightly, a prophetic voice for the local church for many years, uh, Rick McKinley of Imago Day up in Portland. Rick, thanks so much for uh, spending some time with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be on. Um, you've written several books over the years, and your voice has been really important in a variety of ways. You, you've always been able to speak to sort of the undercurrent of things. And and for me as a church leader, it's always been so helpful because, um, and again, I said this in the introduction, but you've been a prophetic voice in that you helped me and so many leaders see things that we're feeling and name them and call them out and then respond to them. And you have a brand new book out um, that does that in a really provocative way. So tell us about the book. And um, it's called Faith for This Moment. And uh, I guess the question is, like, what what are you seeing right now in American Christianity and in the church and maybe not seeing that should be there that compelled you to write this book right now? Yeah, I know. That's a good question. I, I think the question... Uh, we're in Portland, so that we're always sort of wrestling with what does it mean to be the people of God now? Uh, and I would say the last five years, there's been pretty dramatic cultural shifts. Um, but particularly, I think, post-2016 election uh, was, was a beginning of a redefinition of even the language of evangelical and what that meant uh, culturally versus sort of theologically and uh, ecclesiologically. When you think about the foundations of the movement with John Stott and Rene Padilla and the Luzon Covenant, uh, we are so far removed from that now where it is uh, labeled as white Republican, you know, whatever right 
And I think what what you see is that polarization in culture has has easily and too easily crept into the church, where we divide ourselves along the lines of culture. Um, and that could be politics, it could be causes, it could be issues. Uh, and we reduce our identification as God's children to just another one of these bumper stickers that we use to create our self-identity. So it just comes off as another cause, another issue. That polarization, and, and I think people that are moderate in any way, uh, politically and otherwise, and are seeking to be biblical, really are asking, like, well, how do I be faithful to Christ in this cultural moment? when there's a lot of misunderstandings and there's also a lot of divisions. And, uh, and so, yeah, I think the book, what I'm trying to do is answer that question. What does it mean to be the people of God now? You use a really helpful, you create a really helpful parallel very early in the book. And, you know, some people are familiar with this. A lot of people um, may not be, but you talk about and you explain um the motif of exile, which wasn't just a motif, it was a literal experience for yeah. the people of God throughout the biblical story. And you use that as a parallel for the moment we find ourselves in now. So sort of a twofold question as a follow-up. Explain just as briefly as you can, um, what what is it? What are we talking about when we talk about exile, biblically speaking, and the people of God throughout the story of God? And how what parallels do you see um, to us living today in 2018 in America in a late modern post-Christian world with all of the political polarization and other sorts of polarization? Yeah, what are sure. those parallels? Sort of explain that for us. Yeah, so I think a definition of exile is that the promises of the past and the shape of what the future is going to look like for us has to be reimagined because the things that were there that validated our belief system are no longer present or are no longer held as valid truth systems. So for the people of God in literal exile, that means you had to figure out how to be a faithful Jew without king, without temple, without priesthood, without your calendar, without language. I mean, it's just they woke up, they should have been assimilated and disappeared uh, through Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, but they didn't. Uh, and then the New Testament uses it metaphorically for the fact that we're in the world, but we're not of the world, and we do have a marginalized stake in culture. I think for white evangelicals in particular, we are experiencing the first sort of moment of marginalization that's been coming for several years hmm. not the african-american church they've understood how to be faithful in exile for a long time hmm. but i think the idea for the white evangelical churches man what we need to either take it back and regain our power and in institutions or we just assimilate ourselves to the progressive politics of culture you know yeah, just maybe some definitions, too, to help some of our audience. 
the word evangelical, it's funny, Rick, it's defined differently now by depending upon who you're talking to, but originally in a historical context, most people point to a historian by the name of Bebbington to define evangelical. He has Bebbington's quadrilateral, and in it he said evangelicals, there's four points, activism, biblicism, uh, cruciformism, and conversionism. And so basically evangelicals were defined by people who think the Bible is the word of God, that you should take your faith into the public sphere in some sense. It should be centered on the cross and Christ's death and resurrection, and that you had to have a personal conversion. You couldn't just say, well, I'm English, so therefore I belong to the Church of England. I'm, right. I'm a Christian. Right. And that's that's the roots of evangelicalism. And for that definition, I don't know any Christian who would not want to be evangelical at that point. Yeah, but what's happened is is what you mentioned is, specifically with the election, I mean, I, I don't know any other time where there was evangelicals who were so at odds that we had never Trumpers and people who were saying basically, this is the new King Cyrus. Get 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 on board. Speaking of exile, um, he is the one to end our exile almost, and uh, it, it creates this this confusion where people don't even like the term anymore, and so navigating it as as you said as like a white evangelical, you don't you're not even aware that something is 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 happened, and all of a sudden you are occupying the space of exile now. How how do we live then? Like, what are what are the things we do in in light of that? In light of the fact that people don't even agree on a definition anymore, people don't even agree on what we should do. People don't even know what what's the way forward. So that's that's the the kind of thrust of your book. So kind of what are you seeing? Are are the steps that maybe could bring unity and some cohesiveness to evangelicals? You know, I I don't think that. I think the term's been lost. Uh, I know Keller talks about this as well. Uh, trying to rebrand something that's been rebranded. <laughs> I just the church has never been good yeah. <laughs> at marketing, so I don't know that we're going to recover that. That's sort of why I use the language of people of God. Yep. Um, more than anything, to force all of our imaginations to ask, who is that? And as you know, that may be someone at an evangelical church, but it may not uh, if evangelicalism has just become another label, uh, like a, I'm Catholic, but I don't go to church kind of a thing. Um, but wider than that to say, what is it that we're supposed to confess? What is it we're supposed to believe? So for us uh, at Imago, you know, we are, we're, replacing our doctrinal statement with the Apostle and Nicene Creed, mm. realizing that for hundreds of years, these creeds really protected the mystery of what the gospel is. Uh, they're not just some dogma that we're supposed to state to get saved, but they're trying to say what the New Testament writers were saying and kind of put a hedge around that. So first of all, it's what are we confessing, you know? What is it that we're supposed to believe? Uh, and do we believe what the church has always believed, you know? Or are we reinventing it for our moment hmm. and essentially raising culture above Scripture? Mm -hmm. 
And there's a generous orthodoxy found in in the creeds um, that is probably needed at this time because, you know, when America is culturally Christian, so let's go to the 50s where 98% of respondents on a survey are going to say, oh, of course I'm Christian. Mm -hmm. What happens is is you, you have the luxury and leisure to debate fine points. So we're going to argue to death about infant baptism and argue to death about these second and third tier questions. When you cease to be the dominant majority, you just start looking for friends. Who's, who's on our team? When the banner of Jesus goes up, who salutes? Because I'm with them. And the creeds help you do that because they, they, they have a generous orthodoxy. The second and third tier items that we can dialogue about matter but the creeds force you into recognizing the unity of the church that has been here for two, 2,000 years. Do you recite them do you, at your church? Do, yeah, do you like- yeah, we use them. I mean, part of, part of wanting to adopt them, I think, was that our doctrinal statements tend to live somewhere on a website buried beneath, you know, X amount of pages. And, and so you have people in your church that say they believe in Jesus, but if they were to define who mm. Jesus is to them, you'd realize, well, that's not <laughs> the real Jesus, you know? So being able, the creeds are beautiful because not only do they instruct and sort of protect, but they also are existentially part of our worship. We say that we believe in this moment about this historical event that I'm presently experiencing through the Holy Spirit. So, so yeah, we, we confess them. We're not great at kind of high church stuff. We're sort of literary liturgy and blue jeans, but you know, we, yeah, they're a big part of our worship. You know, Rick, one of the things that I think you've always done so well, that's been helpful for the church at large You've been able to, I think most church leaders who know your work sort of assume and see you as a a pioneer, forerunner, someone who's always thinking forward. And you certainly have been that and continue to be that. Imago has been an influential church on a national level for that reason. But one of the things I love about your work, and you do it in this book as well very early on, your anything you're thinking about when it comes to the future is almost always embedded in your sense of the long history of God's unfolding story. And mm-hmm. uh, you say in early in the book, you say this, um, you said, what does it mean to be the people of God now? That's the question that drives this book. What I'm excited about is this, and this is like what I love about what you do. You say, we are not unique in this moment. God's people have been in moments like ours. They've survived times of being marginalized and misunderstood. They've come through times when they were disciplined by God for unfaithfulness and found redemption in his mercy. And most encouraging is that throughout history, God's people have found a way to be faithful, prophetic, and imaginative as they discovered fresh ways to announce that Jesus is still Lord of all things, even in moments like this. And I want to ask you specifically um, as one who serves and leads in the local church in a place like Portland, where I think the, you know, C.S. Lewis idea of chronological snobbery runs rampant. What is new is best and what is old is pointless sort of idea. And I love what you're saying about the creeds. How, um, talk a little bit, maybe on a personal level as a pastor, how the history of the church, the long history of the church 
gives you hope that even in a moment like this, um, the bride of Christ is going to prevail and what it will take for us as leaders to, uh, to participate in that work. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I, you know, for, for me, the church should not have made it out of the first century. You know, we suck at business. We suck at branding. (laughs) And, and so the idea that we're still here is just fascinating. It's one of the best apologetics, I think. Mm. Um, and yes, in Portland, where everything is new and unique, there is this move, I think, to progressive, you know, progressive Christianity, which is a way of saying culturally liberal, and we're going to assimilate to culture on a number of issues. So, so it's nobody wants to be the guy that says, I believe this is true in a culture that says that's bad. But the church has always, in every culture, had windows that they had to resist, that the truth of God is going to confront culture. We just, we just always elevate our cultural moment and say, this is the most, uh, you know, evolved culture of all times. Mm-hmm. And you're like, eh, I don't think so. It's culture is like a treadmill that we run on and it mm-hmm. changes, but we don't go anywhere really. So if I was in a Middle Eastern culture and I said, hey, we, we should believe in marriage between one man and one woman, they would agree. But if I said we should love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you, they might completely disagree. Hmm. And you can reverse that in Portland, yeah. you know. And, and so which culture is right hmm. when culture is just the air you breathe? Um, so rather than deify culture, we're saying the gospel goes in the culture, contextualizes itself in a time and place, and is good news and critique mm. simultaneously. But it also needs to be doing that to the church, mm. right? Like it's converting us too. And I think this is where quote-unquote evangelical churches have kind of missed it, in that they see conversion as that one moment in time when you prayed a certain prayer and not a daily call to my own transformation so that I can be the faithful presence of Christ in the world as well as a prophetic witness. Hey everybody, just taking a quick break from the conversation to let you know about our partners in ministry. Um, If you've been to any of our events or if you've been on our website, um, you know that uh, from day one, our partner in ministry has been Western Seminary. If you are looking for a master's degree in um, just about any theological or counseling or pastoral field, um, we would encourage you to check out Western Seminary. They have a top class faculty, and um, while their main campus is up in Portland, Oregon, they've got campuses all over uh, the West Coast, and, as well as a really great online program. Um, people like Dr. Gary Brashears and Tim Mackey of the Bible Project, uh, incredible people um, teach at Western Seminary. So it's an opportunity for you to learn from absolutely the best. So uh, if you're looking, again, for um, a 
graduate program in theology or counseling or leadership um, to serve the local church or to serve Jesus in the world, then uh, check out Western Seminary at westernseminary.edu. And uh, for those of you who are looking for an undergraduate program, uh, our partners in ministry at Eternity Bible College um, is a fantastic, amazing option. Uh, They, too, have um, an incredible faculty. Their main campus is down in Southern California, but they've got a great online program. Uh, You're able to actually do your entire degree remotely if that's something you're interested in, as well as a couple of sites throughout the country. Uh, And one of the things they're committed to is making sure that their students graduate with their bachelor's degrees um, debt-free. And so they do some amazing things to work with you financially. So uh, it's an incredible option. I know for me, um, getting my Bible degree and my graduate degree was not cheap. (laughs) And uh, it was a struggle financially. So um, I wish I had known about eternity back when I was a student. So it's an incredible option, great education. And uh, so check them out at eternitybiblecollege.com. And as always, go to our website for resources. we just had our big annual Regeneration Forum event, which was amazing, but uh, we've got other events coming up throughout the year, so all of that information will be on our website, as well as um, articles and videos and all sorts of resources. It's a great way to stay connected to the Regeneration community, so uh, just check us out at regenerationproject.org. And uh, now back to our conversation with Rick McKinley. I had the privilege of being in Morocco with uh, imams and rabbis, about 60 of us, to talk about how we would share kind of the love your neighbor message, right? And one of the things that struck me is that for the rabbis, they had the little hat that they wore, you know, they had their whole calendar set up. Uh, the imams left the meeting every day at four to pray, you know, all these times. And all of us evangelical, quote unquote, pastors just sat around with, with zero practices. Like, yeah. one thing we might do would be pray before a meal, but even that was suspect if we were hungry. And I was struck by the fact of everybody practices their faith, these other two groups, and we don't practice anything. Mm. Um, and those practices for in the Old Testament were protective in a sense that they kept them from assimilating to Babylonian values, but it also was uh, faithful, right? This is the God who exists. And so we began to dream about, like, what are those things in culture that both transform me Uh, And while I'm doing them, they faithfully present Christ to the world and they critique the world that I'm in. And all three of those are happening simultaneously. And so we looked at five practices. One is uh, hear and obey the word and spirit. That our posture isn't that we're just getting more information and never really acting on it. But we're going to listen and we're going to be ready to respond. Uh, and then we look at hospitality, you know, who is that sitting at my table? What are the conversations we're having in a world of isolation? Hospitality and a welcome seems pretty faithful, but also mm-hmm. it's prophetic. You know, we, we only eat among our tribes for the most part. 
So extending the welcome and receiving the welcome. Generosity is a huge one. Um, I mean, the stories that we can tell, whether it's through Advent stuff that we've been able to give and bless, or just local things, uh, even among LGBT communities and ways that we've been able to bless some of uh, some of their organizations. They, it is so prophetic in a consumer culture to give money generously. Mm. Um, it, I think it's faithful in that Christ obviously gave us everything, but it's also prophetic. Um, you know, years ago, the church has gathered to give a hundred grand to the mayor uh, to start a mentoring program. And so we had this gathering two weeks after Sam Adams had a massive scandal and we're handing him a check for a hundred thousand dollars, you know, and everybody else is trying to take him out, you know, media and all of that. And the church is their blessing. And there's something powerful about that. Um, and so we look at vocation as well as Sabbath and celebration. These are all prophetic things that we see even in uh, Israel. They recovered Sabbath in exile. Uh, the irony is that, you know, when they were given it in the law, they weren't really faithful to it. And then they went into exile and they figured out, like, this is different. We lived at a different rhythm. We work at a different rhythm. We use technology differently. And if we can recover some of these practices, then I think we go from confessing something that we don't embody to actually embodying the thing that we confess. Yeah, you, you, um, I want to go backwards just a touch because you, you use the word a couple of times there as as followers of Jesus trying to live faithfully in exile, faithful in this moment, um, you talked about in some of those examples the, the, the ways in which you've seen the church bless uh, the culture at hand. And that's a very intentional word, and it's a part of what you explain in the book. You say that as, as followers of Jesus living in this moment, living in exile— misunderstood and marginalized to a certain extent. You say that there are three approaches we can take, three approaches that have been taken when it comes to a people living in exile. You can choose to baptize the place and the culture of exile, or you could choose to burn down the place of culture uh, and exile, um, or you can bless it. You can bless the place and culture of exile. So explain those three. I mean, the, you've already sort of given away the punchline. You know, blessing is where we're headed. But talk yeah. about both what it means and how you've seen um, Christians baptize uh, the place and culture as well as burn it down. And then uh, what's a new hopeful way forward in, in blessing instead? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the baptizing of culture, we're, we're seeing it quite a bit today, where we begin to say, you know, we begin to try to find a way around the hard truths of Scripture so that Jesus doesn't have really any con critique or confrontation of our culture. And when we do that, what's ironic, if you take even the, the sexuality issue on LGBT, we have people who come to our church and say, will I be welcome here? I'm gay. 
We said, you will be welcome, but we're not an affirming church. And they have told us, we don't want you to become affirming. We've been at several churches that went fully affirming, and they quit preaching the truth. <laughs> and so we're sitting there going, okay, well, you know, for our gay friend here, we're going to not go affirming at his request. <laughs> Mm-hmm. But it is that sense of if we could just get rid of this obstacle, then the culture is going to just flock to Jesus, which I think is a total misnomer. It never, On the it never happens. Down, yeah. Go ahead. No, I was just saying that it never happens. I mean, we don't learn from history when churches assimilate with culture and just baptize stuff because they think it'll clear roadblocks. It never grows. Lampstands no. get removed when that happens, not growth. Totally. And we see that all over the world and Europe and other places. But I think on the burn it down and rebuild Christendom sort of standpoint, that never works either. Uh, Whether it was the 90s moral majority or um, what we kind of see today, you know, when I hear Trump say, hey, we're saying Merry Christmas again, as though we've somehow retained our Christian identity because we say Merry Christmas, knowing that we're still going to spend $650 billion on crap <laughs> in the name of Jesus, you know, who was born as a homeless rabbi. <laughs> you know, like those disconnects don't matter because we are, we're saying Merry Christmas. That's what Christendom thought. Yeah. Uh, and so the idea, if we could just get back to the good old days, whenever that was, um, we know with the number of people who've been like sexually abused that the fifties weren't no, like something no. was happening there that wasn't godly. Uh, but, but the illusion is that we can somehow take back, uh, and, and, and there's impetus to it because we're uncomfortable in exile. It's unfamiliar. And so we want our familiarity back and we want our institutions and all, we want our place in society back. What I love about Jeremiah's letter to the exiles is basically God in Jeremiah 29 says, look, you're not going home. Mm. (laughs) Like what you should do now is build houses, plant gardens, get married, have kids, you know, maintain your identity as my people. But, um, but you're not going home, like get, get comfortable and seek the peace and prosperity of this city. And so, that's what I think the call is for us. Like maintain a strong identity as my children, as, as the people of Jesus, but also seek to bless uh, the city that you live in. And if you think about Daniel, man, he was, he was a huge asset to Babylon for three different Kings. You know what I mean? Uh, Babylon wouldn't have been as great without, without daniel and his friends make babylon then, great again was Dan, D- daniel's make, slogan was yeah. make babylon great again <laughs> yeah uh, they were big into that back then <laughs> especially when nebuchadnezzar got turned into a werewolf they were like yeah <laughs> yeah we got to go back to the old days it's it's funny that in that sense people baptize the past as well we're using that analogy is, uh, and, and typically this happens. This is we know it like personality temperament. Conservatives, um, typically, and I'm a, I'm a conservative, but we look at the past and say the traditions and values of the past must hold. And liberals, because of their personality temperament, not solely their personality temperament, but a big part of it, 
that's what that's what's helpful to distinguish in these conversations. Part of the way we think is our our actual personality temperament, not because of our logic and reason. So conservatives typically will be the past is good, hold to the rules. That's what's got us here. Liberals tend to think the past is bad, and we're progressing into the future. And the right. beautiful statement that you started this off with was Christians ask the question, "How do we be the people of God now?" Yeah, and it's different. It's it's a it's a bringing together of past and future past where we came from, hope of what God can do in the future, and then faithfulness in the now. And I've always seen you as someone who can bridge the gap between those two types of personalities where uh, a conservative at your church is going to probably hear some things that make them uncomfortable, and a liberal is going to hear some things that are going to make them uncomfortable because the gospel critiques everybody. We all have blind spots. Yeah, and we've seen that. I mean, we have lost people on the right and the left, both thinking that we aren't going far enough, you know, either far enough to the left, far enough to the right. But you're kind of in between the Pharisees and the Sadducees getting crucified. And Hmm. I don't know what about following Jesus, who, you know, saved us through his own death, made us think we would be comfortable as we lived out our faith like it is about picking up your cross it is about suffering uh and we're going to far less than many people in the world but but there is a suffering that we experience when we're trying to be faithful Mm -hmm. um for daniel he's like you know this is where i'm going to draw the line i'm not going to eat this meat uh and so you can persecute me if you want but then he also took the name of a pagan god and why wouldn't he fight him on that and he was discerning in the moment right what does faithfulness look like now i think we've done a disservice to the church by teaching behaviors instead of the skill Mm. of discernment because certain behaviors might not be right to do at different times but they also might be right in other times yeah, uh, yeah. You only know how to like this is good, this is bad. Then I think what we're seeing is Christians literally don't know how to live in this world because the, the choices aren't as clear. You know, probably the perfect example of that is Paul relating to circumcision. Paul t- says, "Oh, you're going to get circumcised? No, you should just well." depending upon the, which translation, he says, just cut the whole thing off if you're going to do that, because you're, you're an affront to the gospel and grace of God. But then in a different instance, oh, Timothy, time right. to get circumcised. We got, we got to do that in order to reach the Jewish community so you're respected. So it's, it's exactly what you said. The same action, depending upon the cultural context, changes. It's not just mere behavior. And so... Um, in in seminary and Bible colleges, you learn a word exegesis, and it just means uh, reading the meaning out of the text. But we need Christians to be able to exegete culture. Where is culture going? How do I say this? How do I articulate it? Because we've all heard someone say some some Christian truth that we would actually affirm in a way that we go, "I wish he hadn't said that," because yeah. it's the way in which it's the way it's the way in which it's done a few years ago i gave a sermon on homosexuality in the bible and at that point um i think people found it helpful in that 
you know, I didn't say this is a worse sin than any other sin. Uh, like we have no moral authority to sort of preach against the culture because the church is rampant with sexual sin. And we're trying to figure out what this book means and be faithful to it. Um, but if I was to give that same sermon today, it would not be heard as hopeful, mm. you know, because things have progressed so quickly. Mm. Um, so, yeah, you seem like, yeah, we seem like Amish people, honestly, <laughs> with our views around sex before marriage or, you know, a whole bunch of things. And it's sort of like we're totally irrelevant. Uh, and that's what I worry about with the the baptizing of culture is that there's a lie that says, if I'm relevant, then we'll accept Jesus. And the only thing we want to do is be clear. So, yeah, we're relevant. You can understand our language, whatever. Um, but that doesn't mean that we're influential. Hmm. Um, you, may, you may fully reject this gospel. So will we still be faithful when it quote unquote doesn't work like it used to yeah. and can we reimagine new ways of faithfulness? This isn't just something you write about or, or, or teach on. This is something I think that you've led your church in Portland in a, in a very real way through um, in terms of that third way of engaging while in exile, the idea of blessing that place while still creatively resisting. Um, and the two actually in, in really sort of paradoxical ways can and should go hand in hand. Um, just for pr pragmatic sake, can you talk a little bit about ways that people at Imago living there in a strange, weird, often difficult, but often beautiful place like Portland have done this. You, you got. I don't know if you guys still do this, Rick, but I know you guys used to at least do this thing where you guys had like a a scholarship thing. People like just people in your church could apply for, where then if they had some idea, some creative means of blessing um, the culture at yeah. large, you guys were like supporting that financially as a church. Talk about some of the stories that came up out of that and maybe even what birthed that to fuel this sort of blessing approach um, yeah, to the culture. Good. Yeah. We do a thing called missional grants. Um, we did it more so to surface like what the spirit of God was doing in our people and putting in the hearts of people. So we take, you know, 25 to 50,000 a year and it's dedicated to, ministries that people within the congregation are dreaming up and we sort of surround them with business people and entrepreneurs and help them put the plan or the proposal together uh, if it's not ready like we'll work with them for next year and we've just yeah we've seen incredible things come out of that or they turn into nonprofits like embrace Oregon which works you know across the state with the foster care system that came out of one family's little missional grant. Uh, and then we also do a thing called change for a dollar where everybody puts a dollar in the bucket every week, but then that money exists for anybody in our congregation to meet a need of someone outside of our congregation. Mm -hmm. So if you see a neighbor that car broke down, they don't have the money to pay it, you know that there's actually an account you could call. And all we ask is you tell the story. 
Um, and what you find is, again, that generosity is prophetic piece. Like, if it's 500 bucks, the people are still weeping because mm. they can't believe that there's a community of people somewhere and God saw me and knew I had this need and met it. After the Orlando shooting, uh, I went to the Q Center, which is the LGBTQ kind of headquarter in Portland, serves that community, and just took them uh, one of those change for a dollar offerings, a couple thousand dollars, and just said, we know that your community's hurting, uh, and they're afraid, and I'm sure your work has escalated, and we're praying for you, and we just want to give you this. And they were like literally bawling the executive director. They're not bawling, but they're crying and I'm sort of crying and they go, well, you could sign up with all the affirming churches. And I'm like, we're not affirming, but you know, it got a little awkward at that point. Cause it's one of those, like, I don't know what to do with this mm. now. Um, this summer was extremely hot and the Q centers AC broke down. So they called us and said we didn't know who else to call, which is fascinating to me in a culture like Portland, uh, that you called us. So it was 15 grand. We didn't have it. We called six, seven other churches. Everybody jumped in in four hours. And when Ken, uh, who works with us on the city stuff, sits down, he hands them this check. It says, You're, this is coming from about eight churches that you think hate you. Mm -hmm. It's not true. And again, they have this powerful moment. Does that mean they all rushed to Imago and said, I, I want to believe in Jesus? No. But I think anytime we get the gospel right, it it's one of those moments that seems very other, hmm. right? It's, we don't know what to do with this. I think that's often the response to the gospels is, who is this? Hmm. Why are they doing this? We sold a parking lot and made some money and we tithed off of that and grabbed 15 people in the congregation and said, pray for 40 days. You need to give away $100,000. And they picked three organizations that aren't Christian organizations. One was working with transgender teens to try to reduce the suicide rate and, you know, on and on. And, but you see the Holy Spirit weave these themes together in the people who are praying we didn't have anything to do that as leadership, you know, but when they sit down and hand them 30 grand, their life is transformed. Now it's, I know we're a larger church and we have more money, but what I'm saying is a hundred dollars has impact. Like just the sense that the people of God collectively are better together and we can make an impact when we stand together to represent this gospel. Hmm. That's really powerful. Rick, as we sort of wind down, um, and you sort of did it just now, but as a way of summarizing your heart behind this book, if you can, we have a lot of listeners who, you know, are, are younger, college and young adults, um, but we, we have a significant 
uh, chunk of our audience. They're, they're men and women who are leading in the local church, and they're in particular, many of them are leading, trying to figure out ways that they could best serve and lead their communities in this cultural moment that is so challenging. So um, could you just give all of us who are in that category, trying to lead and serve in the local church, maybe a word of encouragement or challenge that sort of summarizes the heartbeat behind what you're trying to accomplish with this book? Well, I mean, I would say first and foremost, I stand with you in the moment trying to figure it out because we haven't. Um, But my hope is that if we are courageous enough to confront our own idols, then we will be empowered and free enough to present Christ faithfully and prophetically. And so what I mean about that is um, the idolatry of money in our culture exists in the church. We preach generosity, but we're not generous with our own church budgets. You know, and, and, and so where are those places within our own structures and systems and way of doing church that we have been co-opted by culture? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think first and foremost is my heart's always challenged by my need or desire to control or come up with everything. And when you release power and authority and resources the Holy Spirit does something pretty prophetic. So I don't think it'll happen unless we're willing to lay it down the way Jesus did. But with that in mind, I think the hopeful news is we have everything we need for life and godliness. The church is gifted, whether you're big or small, for what God's calling you to do in that moment. So it's more of discovering where are these gifts, who has them, how do we unleash them, rather than figuring out what the next church program is that will attract the world, you know? Rick, you're, um, again, you've been such an encouraging and challenging and provocative voice for the church for many years, and we're grateful for all the work you've done and the work you're doing now and will continue to do. So um, let people know where they can find you and, and connect to not just this book, but all the other stuff you've done in the past. Yeah, that's great. I would say um, rickmckinley.net is a blog that I don't update enough. Um, the, my Twitter handle is rickmckinleypdx, rjmckinley on Instagram, adventconspiracy.org. Uh, we're relaunching that book this year, and so we're excited to just continue the movement. of. I think that's one major prophetic thing that the church can do. Yeah. So yeah, amagodayidcpdx.com. Rick, we're big fans, have been big fans. Really appreciate your work well, again. Big fans of you guys as well, and I appreciate what you guys are doing. 